The title of my message is In God We Trust. Now, normally when we think of those words or when we say those words, when we hear those words being spoken, usually what we think of is we think of what's written on our currency. The words In God We Trust is written right on our money. In fact, I have a little picture here of a genuine Lincoln one cent coin. And you see written right across uh, the top of Lincoln's head in God, we trust it's written on our coins. It's written on our dollar bills and we keep it in our wallets and our purses and our pockets. And I wonder sometimes, do we ever think about just what those words mean in God? We trust, for example, what exactly is it about God that we trust? There must be something. After all, it's written on our currency. Well, the Bible tells us that there are many attributes to God. Uh, for example, uh, the Bible tells us that God is eternal. He's outside of time. The Bible also tells us that God is a trinity. He is three persons in one. We just got done singing, holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed trinity. And the Bible also tells us that God is unchanging. He is unchangeable. And there's a theological term for this. Maybe some of you know that. When we say that God is unchangeable, we say that God is what? Immutable. Okay, very good. A plus over here in the, in the, on this side of the, of the auditorium. God is immutable. The Bible also tells us, though, that God is a God of love. And what many of us have memorized over time is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, those are not the first words that the Apostle John wrote. In John's first epistle, he writes not only that God is capable of loving us, he actually declares that God is love. He is actually love. So it shouldn't be hard for us to trust a God who is loving that should be pretty easy to do. But the Bible also tells us that God not only is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. Well, that means that God cannot and will not tolerate evil. And it also means that God is going to punish people that are wicked. Well, one would think that there would be all kinds of evidence in the world today of God's justice, just like we have evidence of God's love in the form of the gift of his son, Jesus. However, it doesn't take much looking to see that we have all kinds of problems in this world. There are terrible things happening in our world. We have wars that are going on. We have natural disasters. Even as we speak, the island nation of Jamaica is being devastated by a hurricane. And we can look from time to time on the front page of the newspaper and see story after story after story of one person doing terrible things to another person. In fact, we can see evidences of entire societies falling into a moral decline. So we shouldn't be surprised when we hear non-Christians say there must not be a God, because surely if there was a God, he wouldn't allow all this evil to take place. Surely if there was a God, he would punish 
all the wicked people in the earth that are doing these terrible things. But sometimes we don't see that happening because evil is happening all over all around us. What what people such as that are really asking is this question. Can we trust God to be just? That's the question that they're asking. And that's not just a question that was being asked in modern times. That's also a question that was being asked by one of the Old Testament prophets named Habakkuk. And today we're going to take a look at just the first chapter of Habakkuk. And we're going to see some similarities in the world that Habakkuk lived in. And we might see similarities to that and the world that we live in today as we learn a little bit more about God's justice. But before we open up that book, I'd like us to have a little word of prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that you are both a God of love and a God of justice. Help us to better understand what that means for us today. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. How can you tell if a country is in moral decline? Or more specifically, how can you tell if your own country is in moral decline? And and I'm not talking about things like, well, the stock market is falling apart and gas prices are rising. Nothing like that. How can we tell if the country or if the society that we live in is operating outside what we read in God's word? Uh, Try a couple of these ideas out. In the year 1965, the movie that won the Oscar Academy Award for Best Picture was The Sound of Music. In fact, you see overhead, there's the poster from the movie starring Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. It was a wonderful movie. It was a family movie. And we saw children singing and dancing. We had Catholic nuns uh, encouraging everyone to climb every mountain. Right? It was a wonderful movie. And there was, there was no actual bloodletting that was shown in the film. There was no swearing. It was a wonderful movie. And it was considered to be the best movie in the country. Now, fast forward to nearly 30 years later, in the year 1992, what do you think was the best movie of the year? It was a movie made by Clint Eastwood, The Unforgiven. It was a Western, and usually in Westerns, we like to think that the guy in the white hat is going to win the day. But in this movie, the movie ends with the bad guy not only shooting the sheriff, but killing the sheriff. And getting away with it while he's been drinking and swearing all the way off into the darkness. That was considered to be the number one movie in the nation. 1992. When we take a look back about 40 years ago, it wasn't very often that people would talk about divorce or abortion because people just instinctively, or at least it seems so, knew that these kinds of things are wrong. So we wouldn't want to do them. Well, here we are in the year 2007. Not only is the killing of the innocents the law of the land, it's the law of the land. But also in today's world, evangelical Christians are now just as likely to get divorced as non-Christians. Where in the world have we gone? We are a far way 
from a world of Edelweiss. And it would be very easy for us to ask God, well, God, why don't you fix what's wrong with the society? Why did you just take care of these things? Can't you see the evil going on? God, just fix it. Well, these are the same kinds of questions that Habakkuk was asking of God in his book. And before we jump into the book, I just want to give you a little bit of a background. We need to have just a little bit of context to the world that Habakkuk was living in. And I won't get real deep, but you need to have a little bit of information. So just take a little bit of time with me, if you will. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, roughly, David was the king over all of Israel. And Israel was a united kingdom, uh, and he was, a, he was uh, 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 for the most part, a good king. Uh, he had some faults. Uh, he and his wife Bathsheba had a son named Solomon. We've heard of the wisdom of Solomon. And uh, then Solomon also had a son. His name was Rehoboam. Okay, Rehoboam was the grandson of David. And Rehoboam was not a good king. Rehoboam was, a, was an evil king. And because of this, there was a revolt in Israel. And the nation split in two. And I have a little graph here to show you what the nation looked like after the split. Now, there's a dividing line that goes uh, just to the north of Jerusalem. And all the territory north of Jerusalem was considered to be the northern kingdom of Israel that you see marked there on the on the slide. And everything south, including the city of Jerusalem, was the southern kingdom of Judah. From that time forward, it was a divided kingdom. Okay, so now fast forward a couple hundred years. We're now looking at the year 722 B.C. And what happens in the northern kingdom is that the the. The nation falls into spiritual and moral decline. They've had nothing but evil and wicked kings, and uh, they've been desecrating uh, their worship places, and they've been worshiping idols. And God finally decides he's had enough of this, and right around 722, the Assyrian army comes down out of the north and conquers the entire northern kingdom of Israel and takes away uh, a a lot of people into captivity. Uh, In fact, some theologians believe that remnants from that captivity came back and become the people that we read about in the time of Jesus, the Samaritans. Now, not every theologian agrees with that, but it's a possibility about where the Samaritans came from. So this is a terrible thing that happened. And the reason why this is important to know that is that this is going to play into Habakkuk's thinking because it's part of the history of uh, of the ancient uh, nation of Israel. So one last leap forward, about 130 years from that time. Now we're somewhere around 590 B.C., somewhere in that general area. This is the era that Habakkuk is living. He's living in the southern nation of Judah. And what do you think is happening in that nation? That nation is now in a state of moral and spiritual decline. They now have a wicked king, just like the northern uh, kingdom of Israel had. And there are terrible things happening in the nation and people have begun to worship idols. And Habakkuk sees all of this and he's wondering, why, God, are you not judging the wickedness in the land? Now, this is in contrast, if you take a a book like Job, where Job was asking a different question. Job, Job was asking, well, God, why are you judging me? Instead, by contrast, Habakkuk is saying, why are you not judging the wicked people in the land. So in that context, we're looking again at Habakkuk's question, why won't you judge this evil nation? So if you have your Bibles from home, 
Now find the book of Habakkuk, or if you'd like to call it Habakkuk, you can. And if you prefer to use your pew Bibles, you'll find the book of Habakkuk on page 929 in your pew Bibles. And if you are listening to a recording of this message, you'll find Habakkuk in between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah, which might be no help at all because they're both difficult books to find if you don't know where they are. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so what we have here is a conversation that uh, Habakkuk is having with God. Uh, Habakkuk is going to make a case to God, and then God's going to answer him. So we're going to have a little conversation that we get to listen in on. Okay? So uh, the very first verse of Habakkuk, this is just chapter 1 we're going to look at today. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. And here we go, verse 2. Here's Habakkuk's complaint to God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you... Do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? This gets back to the non-Christians idea why God uh, doesn't fix the evil in the world. He continues, verse 4. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This is quite an indictment. He's saying to God, God, you're not taking care of the evil in the land. Don't you see the evil that is going on? Why don't you do something about this? Justice is perverted. Habakkuk doesn't see any sense to this at all. Well, God is going to answer Habakkuk. And what an answer it's going to be. He's going to terrify Habakkuk with his answer. So now this is going to be God talking back to Habakkuk. We pick it up in Verse number five. Here's God's answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Uh, This is a very strong word of foreboding. And in this section of the book and in verses to follow, God is saying basically three things. The first thing that God is saying here is this. I have seen the evil in the land. You might not think I've seen it. I have seen it. I know about it. It hasn't surprised me. I know what's going on. The second thing that God is saying to Habakkuk is this. I have a plan. You might not know what that plan is. I might not have yet revealed it to you. I have a plan to deal with it. And the third thing that God is saying to Habakkuk is this. I will act. And how is he going to act? God is now going to tell Habakkuk how he's going to act. The first part of verse number six, he continues saying his plan to Habakkuk. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians. Okay, who are the Babylonians? Well, good guess is that, well, they're the people that live in Babylon. Okay, well, where's Babylon? Well, here's a little graphic to give you some idea where Babylon is. On the slide overhead, you see in the red square, that is the land of Judah, sitting there just off of the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a red arrow that's pointing to Babylon. And uh, you see that it's very close to where the Tigris and Euphrates River meet. And if you're really sharp, you'll notice that in the lower right-hand corner, you have the Persian Gulf. Now, by this time, we ought to be able to recognize this landmass 
It turns out that Babylon is sitting, next slide please, right smack in the middle of modern day Iraq. Iraq, the very place where our military men and women have been fighting a war. Just think of this. The people that we have been in battle with, some of those people are direct descendants of the Babylonian army that God is telling Habakkuk he's going to send to conquer the southern nation of Judah. Amazing. We're fighting the same guys 2,500 years later. Absolutely amazing. Okay, so here's God's plan. Again, verse 6, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. And then he continues a few more lines saying exactly just how ruthless the Babylonians are and just exactly what they're going to do. It's terrifying stuff. He continues again, picking it up at verse 11. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Now God's saying a couple of things here. He's indicating, first of all, that he's not just going to judge the wicked people in the nation of Judah. He's judging the entire nation. And he's not just going to deal with the wicked. He's going to cause this gigantic army to conquer the entire nation of Judah. And it's not just any old army. It's an army that's going to be made up of pagans, wicked people, immoral people. God isn't going to just send righteous people to correct the situation. God is going to send people that are even more unrighteous than the unrighteous people in Judah. Well, this is a shock to Habakkuk. You can imagine because he's fully aware of what God had done just 130 years earlier. God allowed the Assyrian army to virtually carry away the northern nation of Israel. So not only is Habakkuk aware that God is capable of doing this to Judah, he knows he can do it because he's done it. Now, this is not what Habakkuk asked for at all. What he asked for was, God, fix us. Take care of the evil in the land. Instead, God is saying, the entire nation is going to be conquered. I'm sending the Babylonian army. Now, this is not what Habakkuk expected. He doesn't like this plan. He doesn't agree with this plan. And in the middle of all of this, there's a very important lesson for us to learn. And it's probably the most important thing I'm going to say in the message today. So if, if you don't get anything else from the message, I would invite you to consider this. Because all of us from time to time ask God to help us. And we either ask him to help us to solve a problem. Maybe, Lord, change me. Lord, maybe change our government. Maybe change the world. Lord, maybe even change things going on in our church. And the thing is this. This is the point. When God answers our prayers, his plan might not be the plan that we have in mind. It's God's plan. And we need to be willing to trust it. And sometimes that's not easy to do. In fact, I have a little confession to make. This was a convicting word for me as I was preparing the message, because 
Uh, I'm very capable of looking at the plans and either approving or disapproving of them. And I might just decide to take matters in my own hands and change the plan. I'm perfectly capable of doing that, as are we all. We're all capable of saying, I don't like this plan. We're all capable of saying, that's it. I'm fighting this plan. I disagree with this plan. We're all capable of doing this. True? Well, this is not what God wants us to do. God wants us to realize that it's God's plan that counts. It's not our plan. And we need to be willing to trust God's plan. Now, there was a movie that just came out recently called Evan Almighty. Did anybody, anybody see that movie? Anyone see it? A couple? Okay. It's a cute little movie. It's kind of a modern-day story telling of uh, Noah's Ark. In the movie, Evan's wife has, has prayed that their family would come together and get really close. And instead, as the movie carries on, the exact opposite happens. All kinds of problems come upon the family, and they virtually start breaking apart. And then uh, Evan's wife goes away for a while, and she runs across Morgan Freeman, who's playing the character of God in the movie. And she tells Morgan Freeman all of her problems. She wanted the family to get close together. Instead, the family's breaking apart. And then Morgan Freeman says some very interesting things for her. He tells her this. Well, we have to remember that when we pray for God to help us through difficulties, what we get are the very difficulties that we need to get through. God just doesn't automatically make our problems go away, but he does enable us to get through the problems. Likewise, when we ask God to give us patience, what do you think God is going to do? Do you think God is going to remove all the things out of our lives that cause us to have to be patient? No, what will happen more likely is that we're going to be put in situations where we have to exercise more what? Patience, right? Now, that doesn't seem to make sense to us. And quite frankly, that's not always the way that it works. Sometimes God does give us uh, abilities that we heretofore had not had. But sometimes God chooses to do the very thing that to our thinking does not make sense. And so we need to put our trust in God. We need to trust him. Well, getting back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk is not ready to trust God with this word. He's just heard this plan. He doesn't agree with it. And he's going to make a case to God. We're going to go back to seeing what Habakkuk is going to say to God. And we're going to find out that he starts out being very humble. He's going to revere God. And then he's going to try to make some points as he states his case. He's going to try to tell God, here's why you shouldn't do this plan. So we go back to the book again, picking it up at verse 12. He says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them. Now the them there is the Babylonian army. Okay? He says, O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Now Habakkuk here is is kind of resigned to what God has said to him. He's saying, in effect, he's saying, okay, God, I've heard you. I understand you have this plan. Uh, he's being worshipful about it, saying, oh, God, my holy one, are you not from everlasting? And he's saying, I realize you're going to send this terrible army to punish us. And then from there, he's going to pay God a compliment. And then all of a sudden, he starts to try to do a little, a little bit of um, suggestion here. We pick it up in verse 13, where Habakkuk, again, talking to God, says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
You cannot tolerate wrong. This is one of the ideas we talked about earlier about God being just. Then he says this. So why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's picked up on the idea that God has said there's this pagan army that's going to come down to wipe out Judah. And so Habakkuk is kind of hearkening back to Abraham's argument to God when God said to Abraham, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about this in the Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people in the town? What about 40 or 30? What if there's 10 righteous people in, in the town? Will you wipe out the entire town? It's the same kind of idea that's hinted at here. He says, will you swallow up those more righteous with the unrighteous? So he's being kind of sneaky here, uh, alluding to things that God has, has uh, worked out in the past. Then, the, then he, he comes out with, a, with an outright rant in verse 14. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe, this is again the Babylonians, the wicked foe, the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up, up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. What Habakkuk is saying here is God... We're being treated like fish. Here, we're supposed to be your chosen people, and this terrible army is going to come down, and we're going to be treated like cod. Now, this is actually a pretty high-quality ranting when you think about it. I'm, I'm very impressed with this. And uh, so then he finally makes a, a closing comment here in verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices, and he's again talking about the, ba- the Babylonians, therefore he sacrifices to his net, and burns incense to his dragnet. And this harkens back to what God said earlier when God is saying uh, these are guilty men whose strength is their God. God had said to Habakkuk that it is not Jehovah, almighty God, that is the God of the Babylonians. The God of the Babylonians is their own strength. And so Habakkuk is saying to God, in essence, look, God, you're not going to get any credit for this terrible thing that's going to happen. The Babylonians aren't going to praise you. They're going to praise themselves. They're going to praise their nets. And so having made his case, Habakkuk now is silent. We see at the very beginning of the second chapter that Habakkuk says, I will now wait and see what the Lord will answer. Now, God's answer comes later in the second chapter chapter, but for now we're going to leave the book of Habakkuk. And what God is going to tell Habakkuk is that this plan doesn't just stop with Judah, because he has a plan for the Babylonians as well. God always has a plan. He had a plan for the nation of Israel. He had a plan for the nation of Judah. He had a plan for the Babylonians. He has a plan for us. God has a plan for each and every one of you here today. Jeremiah 29:11 says this, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now we might not always understand that plan. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make sense to us. 
Sometimes we might disagree with God's plan. Sometimes God's plan might even confuse us. But when things happen in this life that don't make sense to us, we need to recognize that those might be the kinds of things that God is using to carry out his plan. And so we need to trust that. Because in the end, trusting God isn't really just one of many options. In the end, it's really the only option that makes sense. We can trust God to be just because God gets it right every single time. We can trust God because he is just and God is a God of love. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. We read in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. So a couple of ideas for you to try this week. Okay. This coming week, try to keep track of how your life goes. We we all have ups and downs. We had a very unusual juxtaposition of events yesterday in this very room where the room started out with a child dedication and it ended with a funeral. So kind of keep track of what happens in your life this coming week. Uh, if things go well, uh, we'd like to know about that. In fact, in our church, we ask you to share what's been happening. When we have our welcome cards, there's places to put praises and blessings. And there's uh, also places that you can put your concerns and prayer requests. Well, if God has blessed you this coming week, well, then be prepared to give thanks to him. Give thanks to him for taking care of you and for showing you part of his plan for you and for helping you to put more of your trust in him. And then if some things happen this week that don't go your way, if maybe some some bad things happen to you, maybe if someone says something unkind to you or does something unkind to you, or even if a tragedy strikes, then I'd like to encourage you to continue to try to put more of your trust in God. And to realize, as hard as it might be for you, try to realize that God has seen what's happened. He knows about it. He's seen it. It hasn't surprised him. And he can deal with it, even before we tell him. Try to realize that God has a plan for you. We might not understand it. It might confuse us. We might not even agree with it. But God has it all figured out. And we don't have to worry about it. And then three, try to remember that God will act and we can trust him. We can trust God. We can put our trust in God because ultimately, not only is God just, but God also loves us exceedingly. God loves you exceedingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us that you always have a plan, even when we don't understand it. Thank you for your word, which reveals your plans for us in part. And we look forward to that time when we will know your plans for us in full. Father, thank you for being merciful. And thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. And thank you for being God in whom we can place our trust Father, help us to trust you even more. And for that, we will give you all the praise and all the thanks and all the glory. And it's in your name that we pray.